It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Smithsonian Folkways is a nonprofit record label of the Smithsonian Institution. And as a part of their 75th anniversary celebration, the label has reissued two albums by the poet and activist Sarah Webster Fabio, who is often referred to as the mother of black studies. In the 1970s, she helped to establish the first black studies departments at colleges like UC Berkeley. One of the albums is called Juju's Alchemy of the Blues, and the other is titled Together to the Tune of Coltrane's Equinox. These recordings were done in a style described as a funky blend of black poetry, spoken word, and jazz and blues. who have helped keep us all together. This next number, Steel, a red hot axe, is for the late Johnny Hodge. My man, your axe steel, it's blow blown now that you've gone, now that you've done with all that jazz. My guest today is Cheryl Fabio, who is a documentary filmmaker and nonprofit leader who also happens to be the daughter of this renowned poet performer, Sarah Fabio. Our conversation reflects on her mother's work and the far reaching importance of these albums, which include funky riffs and jazz arrangements written and performed with her children and their band called Don't Fight the Feeling. We also discuss the one and only documentary about her mother called Rainbow Black, poet Sarah W. Fabio, which was filmed by her daughter as a part of her master's thesis. Here now is our conversation with Cheryl Fabio. How old were you at the time uh, when these recordings were done? Well, actually, I was in film school, at least for one of them, the one that we use. I made my thesis film, so not only did she make these albums, I was in film school, so she had me make a documentary. It was about a 30-minute documentary, and so it was probably in 1974 or close to that, and and I... um, I filmed the process with Fred Cohen of at least a rehearsal um, and a mixing of one of the albums. So I was about 22. It, it's great, first of all, that it's on the Folkways label because that's part of the Smithsonian's mission to really document people's music, uh, the spoken word, uh, and, and the sounds, basically, from around the globe. Uh, I I would imagine that you and she found that it was a tremendous honor to to be a part of a project like this. Well, you know, when she did it, it wasn't Smithsonian, so it was Folkways, and that's Moash. He was a 
you know, I mean, he, he was huge, but he was also a kind of one-person shop. And, you know, the the it wasn't like she then was in a recording contract and there was money being had and all that other stuff. This was an artist that was committed to preserving her work. And so she paid for her masters. She paid for all of that. She sent him and then Moash turned him into albums. I would hope, frankly, that's an honor going both ways because yes, she got her stuff preserved. Folks who are collecting our culture in one way, like we're giving you our culture too. Mm -hmm. So it really is, uh, for me, a double-sided honor. When your mother started doing this, and I'm sure she has an incredible catalog of poetry, with some five, six hundred poems, what was the inspiration to perform some of these to music? You know, that was the birth of a spoken word. That was the time. So, again, if your work is for academia, you can stay on the page and you can be known in your circle and and fine. But, you know, those were radical times. I think my mother wrote in that period of writing, she was writing for the people. So mm -hmm. now how did the people hear your message? Uh, also, Langston Hughes was a mentor of hers. And one of the things that I heard her speak about was his jazz era. So this wasn't the first time this had been done. So when she performed her poetry, it reached a much wider audience. And she started reading before the got, my brothers got involved in doing the music. But, you know, that's a trajectory to me. It just made sense, step after step after step. You know, I remember seeing her once in New York and the last poets were reading. She was So she's part of that era. She's actually a little bit older than a lot of those folks and a little bit younger than like people like Gwendolyn Brooks. But um, she had a way of keeping her finger on the pulse of the people and, you know, not just responding, but, but being attuned. If you even look at a page of her poetry, it's all over the page. So it's written with a voice in mind. Your mother was a groundbreaker and also a person who was an innovator, found ways to get the message across, and, and used a medium like music to get the word out and to put it out there in front of everybody. And I know that, you know, she's noted as being a poet, a scholar, educator in, in many ways, a critic, but she was also noted as being a performer. Where did that come into place? Had she worked in theater or had any inclinations uh, toward the dramatic side of performance, etc., at one point that would later become incorporated in these recordings? You know, my mom was a precocious kid, so I she went to college. At, no, actually, I think she she might have she might have graduated at sixteen. I mean, she was truly a precocious kid, and her mother had died, and her aunt that raised her had her like reciting and playing piano and all of that stuff. 
and she could be a character. So yeah, that is part of that is part of who she was. She's very savvy with it. I don't think she ever meant to be an actress or anything like that, but she did. She used that in her teaching. She used that when she taught elementary school. She used it when she taught at Merritt College. One of the things that she would do is there's a place she wrote, Saga of the Black Man, and she'd have her her class act this out. And so the white kids would get to be the enslaved people with, you know, and it was traumatizing for many of them. But so now you, you've got a piece of this experience. So she believed in that kind of active learning. That's part of that thing that you see where she just so naturally, I think gets up on a stage and belts out her truth in rhythm in harmony and all of that. So tell me, uh, in going over some of the recordings, when Folkways decided to choose these two albums that were released in relation to the 75th anniversary of the label, when were you notified about it, or how did you learn of it that they were going to bring into the spotlight these two recordings? So, you know, Folk uh, Smithsonian has had these, well, since Moash delivered his archive to them and we get quarterly reports when there's something to report but ideas like that won't come to me until maybe they're beginning to do the marketing of those so they've already made a decision on what in their collection they want to release again it's not until sort of the end of their decision-making that they come to us, because they own them. They don't have to ask for my permission. But I thought maybe that you would have been asked to offer your input as to selecting what no. would be done. Uh, because I, I was curious as to the recordings that she has done, why did they choose Juju's Alchemy or the Equinox recordings? I mean... One thing that we know is that there's, you know, they've got they've got data on their albums, so they're going to release the albums that get more um, that have gotten more attention over the years. Because these albums now are seventy six; they're, they're decades old. So there's a good tracking of which ones the public is responding to. I suspect it's that simple. And when you think about the collection, I mean, it's kind of an honor, whether they settle or not, it's an honor that they're, they're bubbling up to the top because that collection is humongous. Smithsonian already had their own stuff, but now they've got Moash, they've got Arhulis, which is local. They've got a tremendous collection to choose from. So I'm just delighted that they chose any of her, her albums and Every time this happens, a new generation gets introduced to her. And so it's, it's, it's just, it's a lovely thing. Well, and I think at the same time, Charlotte, it's a great way for people that are totally into music to discover someone that could be a significant inspiration to them in other aspects of life as well. Uh, through the spoken word, put to that music. And to me, that that was a, an awakening and just a pure joy to sit down and listen to these recordings and hear her word 
but yet hear it put to music. Not only that, but then to learn more about them is to find out that this was family who was making the music while she was performing the word. They are my brothers, and it's actually my youngest brother who started this. So he was, I don't know how old he was, but probably 13, someplace between 15, 13 to 17. And his best friend, who turned out to be my brother-in-law, I knew my brother-in-law was a musician, but my my brother learned. Uh, my other brother filled in on the congas, and, uh, but then... They had the involvement of Leon Denianke Williams, who's a known um, saxophonist, woodwind saxophonist out here, mm -hmm. and also a drummer that uh, Larry Vaughn, who's very well known. And I didn't realize what a strong band it was until listening to the albums much later, but also the kind of feedback I'd get. And I think, my brothers, my scrappy brothers. But absolutely, yeah. And my mother was really the kind of person where you took what you had and you made something out of it, and uh, and so that's what she did. She needed a band, and she said, "You all get up off the couch. We're a band now." <laughs> Those albums they do have the ability to bridge like geographies and cultures and even politics on some level. You did a documentary called Rainbow Black, Poet Sarah Webster Fabio, which you created and produced. It's a film about your mother's life and work and was a part of your master's thesis in communications at Stanford University. In this documentary, I understand you featured one of the tracks of the re-released album Juju's Alchemy of the Blues, and that track is called Juju's for Grandma. All of that is part of Rainbow Black. We end with that. And not only do we end with this juju for grandma, but for some reason, like I was a kid, I had taken my niece with me. It was me and a friend who went to University of Iowa to spend the weekend making this film. And we took my niece, who was a six-month-old baby with bronchitis, so she could get a little bit of grandma care. Hmm. And... Uh, at some point, we shot my mom interacting with her granddaughter, and that's the way the film ends, with that music under it. Yeah, let's get right on out front with a juju for grandma. In similes and metaphors to objectify the quality of her being. My life is like this old quilt child. Scraps and pieces, odd shapes and colors, but a work of love stitched in time into a special design. Firm, color fast, warming to the body and the soul. She spoke in rhythm. When we got too close and we're in her hair, putting us in our places with proper distance. It's one of the things that makes me smile a lot about that film. That baby is now 47 years old. And so I <laughs> smile a lot about that film. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious, from your perspective, what is it like when you listen to these recordings? What is it like for me personally? Yes. It's a joy because, you know, I'm, I'm hearing 
I'm almost in conversation with her when I hear them. Not having your mom around for what now almost uh, more than 30 years. It is, it's emotional. I'm hearing her voice and the purity of the sound. It's just so meaningful. It's, it is like holding on to, it's holding on to like the best of, because you know, your mom yells at you too. Your mom does, like there's all kinds of levels, but these are some of her best moments when she's not only in her work, but she's in her work at her highest possible way. And it's, it is, it's lovely. Let me ask you about a couple of the uh, tracks, just so I can give our listeners an opportunity to listen to them and, and get some of the meaning. When I'm listening to those albums, I may be focused on what that poem means to me, whether or not I know the name of it. But I'm having a much bigger experience with it, just based on the fact it's my mom and she's gone, right? Uh, I, I was mainly uh, interested in, in what it meant to you. Uh, like, for example, listening to the, the one uh, together to the tune of Coltrane's Equinox. What does the poem together uh, mean? And what, what is that? And how is it connected to John Coltrane? Was that a, a, a favorite artist of hers that uh, she felt, well, we should do something to Coltrane's Equinox? My experience is that I don't think an artist works like that. I think that, uh, like I said, my mother lived in the world and John Coltrane was a formidable presence in our world. So she's inspired clearly, but how does that turn into a poem? That's hers to tell you, right? And I think that, because she created the masters for these albums, she's selecting which poems she wants to represent her work, right? So whether it is, I mean, John Coltrane impacted most of us, all of us maybe. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I get so delighted when you listen to the radio. I mean, I have this thought, you listen to the, you know, K-Jazz or something, and all of those great jazz musicians are showing up still 50 years later then you know that what you were listening to way back then and you said god that's genius we know it because when you listen to them today you still say god that's genius so i mean i think that whatever her muses were leads her to to write about the things that she wrote wrote about So she was deeply moved by music. She was deeply moved by music. Together at the pad Night lit with long track sound On cold trains, equinox Certain this tough, tender time of being together. Sucked in by fog, held at bay outside our framed picture window pose. Sacked out on grass, matted rugs, celebrating it. 
it spoke to her because it you know it's it is musical poetry and she related to that and it related back to her work on any of these recordings uh it just focusing on the poetry are there any particular poems of hers on either one of these two albums that are what could be classified as her hallmark or well-known poems for example on juju's alchemy of the blues sweet songs Like the sun to shine on those in our midst and the still unborn in this hour of our great need. You prophesied the return of mandolins and tambourines and tickling bells and triangles and cymbals, and they sided in on beans from Sarah Sanders as I slept, taking me unaware, tripping, blowing my mind. Hand that rocks, if we come as soft rain, any of those stand out for you? Well, they stand out for me. I don't know how they sit in the public, but soft rain, you know, my parents divorced and, and that that's a that I would say that's a love poem between my mother and my father. So there are, yes, the, there are The Hand That Rocks the Cradle she's written specifically about her grandmother, who I didn't know. The hand that rocks the cradle rocks the boat. Baby, last night when you called me, feeling smug and safe because you were 2,000 miles away, giving me that old line about, wish you were here. Jesus, you forgot, I'm of the order of that bad New Orleans sister Marie, and I've been known to have the power. But it does give, it, it informs us, it informs us, the children, of who that woman was to my mother. Well, on that equinox, there is the poem, Black Is. What is it and what is it not? And at the time she wrote that, you know, black folks were called 
Negroes before that. And this is a change in time. Not only that, let me let me say it like this. You know, that doll experiment where you give children a, a black doll and a white doll and they'll attribute all this negative stuff to the black doll and purity and all those great things to the white doll. This is a poem that kind of scratches back on that. Like, yeah, black is, it's affirmative. It has some connotations that are, you know, the black of mourning and all of that. But also, there's affirmations in that blackness. And when I do read that, I, I do think, I think it's just as relevant today as it was then in terms of articulating, number one, the harm that's been done that's evidenced by that doll experiment, but also how we have reformulated our concept of our blackness and accepted it in a, word, in a way. And when we do that as a people, we connect not only here in the United States, but all over the world, because the truth is that black people show up all over the world and we're no longer a minority. Black is pigmentation, a mirror image of black on black, a preference that leans away from fading colors and imitation whites. Perspective, a clear black eye that peers through the midnight muck of man, a denigrized aspect and value, a defiant thrust to wipe out whitewash, positives of assertive acts, affirmations, a strong yes, not negatives, invisibility and non-entity. I think that uh, she's digging at concepts like that when she wrote that poem. Cheryl, before we conclude our conversation today, tell us briefly about the nonprofit organization that you formed. It's called the Sarah Webster Fabio Center for Social Justice. You know, 20 years ago, actually, it might have even been my grandbaby who wanted to do a diaper drive. And so that might have been the first activity. And then eventually, because I do media, I wanted to do a media center in a high school. So we created this structure. And over time, it has changed and evolved. Today, we kind of consider ourselves a transdisciplinary, art-based community organizing center. We're not physical. We don't have a center yet. That's aspirational. But we do all of that, and we do it in my mother's name in a way that kind of honors the fact that everyday people do extraordinary things. And our work elevates that, that you don't have to be a superhero to do something amazing. Like we can all put our minds to it and do amazing things. So film is the primary output. Um, this film that we just did on homelessness in Alameda County digs really deeply to try and reframe how people in the Bay Area talk about homelessness. Because mostly they're stuck on, oh, these are addicts and these are people with mental health issues. There are some of those, but it's a way bigger community of people facing homelessness than that. 
So we use SWIFT centers is the way we can abbreviate it to as the uh, as the infrastructure that helps us do the work that we do. And right. we honor our mother by by calling it that. And it's a beautiful thing, and I'm glad to see that it exists, and you're bringing things to people's awareness. How could some of our listeners uh, learn more about your mother? Well, you know, in this world, you can Google anyone. Um, We keep a certain amount of information on our website, um, and that is swfcenter4sj.org, but... I think maybe even Googling her is, is, is even better than that because there is sort of, well, we are examining that time period and there's a resurgence of her work, of interest in her work. As, you know, one of the women who, who did have a truncated career and I find value in looking at that. So those folks who didn't have long lives and and accolades all through them. Who were they? I see a, an interest, a resurgence of an interest in my mother as, as that. Do you see the possibility from your perspective as a filmmaker to maybe produce something later more so about your mom than has been done to this date? Frankly, my my first interest is I would really like to publish, get her work published. So that would be step number one. And then, you know, I haven't really thought about that. I have in ways, when I see that film that I made, it's such a small view that I think about it for the moment and then I go on with life. Uh, but maybe. And... and Actually, I think that if that were done, it should be done from the perspective of writers and and uh, the world that she lived in, rather than from my perspective. And so, you know, why not? How can we see the film that you did on her? It does show, but mostly in festivals where... So you can email me, fabio.sherrill at gmail.com and... And I can talk to you about how to see it. I think that's the most direct way. Very good. Well, I appreciate your time today, Cheryl. This has been a marvelous conversation. You are a beautiful individual, and your mother uh, has left a legacy that I think all of us should be aware of and explore more of for our sake as just people. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Thank you so much. Really, doing it is to my satisfaction, so I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with documentary filmmaker, educator, and former program director at Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in Oakland, California, Cheryl Fabio. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.